Make yourself comfortable. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. My name is Luke. If I've not met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here. Very excited to teach today. Very excited to teach this passage. Um, and I was just praying this morning, reflecting on how many books of the Bible we've been able to cruise through since we started this church. The first one being the book of Colossians. It's the very first book that we went through. We did that when we were in Cedar Bluff Middle School. And I think since then, we've gone through six more books of the Bible from front to finish. And if I can be totally honest, the book of John has been my favorite. We're nearing the end of it. We're in the 18th chapter today. Um, and I'm, I'm getting sadder and sadder the closer to the end of this book that we get. So if you, if you brought your Bible, turn to John 18. It's a fascinating passage today, I think. And I think it's been helpful for me in the past. I hope it's helpful for you today as we endeavor to see Jesus much more clearly and God's grace for us much more clearly. While you're turning there, as a pastor, I get questions often that... There's a kind of a question, and then there's a question behind the question. They're asking me something, but I know what they're really asking when they're asking me something. You just learn how to, to maneuver that and to help them along as a pastor. And I think the number one question that people have that they don't ask is, is it possible that I have lost my salvation? That's a crippling thing to think. It's, it's paralyzing to feel like maybe I've done something so far out of bounds that God will go no further with me. Now, our theology says no, that can't happen, right? And it, it actually is across a spread of different denominations that no, you cannot lose your salvation. And, and that's, that happens to be part of our doctrine here. But the scorched conscience that we carry with us sometimes is maybe, maybe we have, maybe I have. And I think the hesitation that comes in answering that question ourselves is because Typically, we've done something very shameful, or maybe many things that have been shameful, and we just can't envision God loving us like he used to love us. We might ask ourselves, or even say outrightly, certainly, whatever grace I've had in the past is, is gone now. And it does paralyze us. It keeps us from walking with any level of confidence at all. We don't really know our standing before the Lord, so we just kind of scuffle around in a little bit of a, a spiritual skulking. Not quite sure if it's even okay to pray. Not quite sure what normal needs to look like. So today we get to watch Peter hit a ball so far out into foul territory that we wonder, is he even recoverable? I mean, is Peter outside of God's love now because of what he just did? We, we see him do something so shameful. Not only shameful, but this is a story where he does something shameful to the soundtrack of a rooster in the background. That rooster signaling something in his heart that brought about bitter tears, the Bible says. And I don't know about you, but personally, I feel like I have a farm full of roosters over the time I've been a Christian, alerting me and reminding me of how monstrous I can be sometimes. How shameful some of my things can be. Maybe how shameful I can be when I don't do certain things. So I don't just read this passage to you today. I feel this passage with you today. I feel it. Yet in the face of Peter's failure and being reminded of my own, I really do see God's grace in the passage. There's a tremendous amount of God's grace. And yes, it has tears and bitterness and regret, but there's a lot of cleansing grace. So today is going to be helpful for some of you who have maybe misperformed 
hit your own share of foul balls and bad performance, bad behavior, I think it will be helpful for you because I know what it feels like to do something, not do something, and then immediately feel like I need to run off and hide and be away from people. And be away from not just a Sunday morning, but just be away from God's people. Be away from the things of God until maybe I can put a few weeks together and scrub myself clean again to where I can show up and maybe put a smile on that's not totally faking it. Today might be helpful for you. When you feel confident before the Lord when you're doing well, but you don't have a shred of confidence when you're not. I actually think today will be most helpful for those of you who are not here today. Right? Not here. You're not here, maybe because you can't bring yourself to come. Maybe you've done something so shameful in your eyes or repeatedly in your eyes that to come to something like this would be to just fake it. And that, that means adding on even more shame, doesn't it? Because no one feels real comfortable doing that. But that thing you did at that time with that person in that place or that thing you didn't do for that person in that time in that place, it's just it's got you locked up and paralyzed. I mean, how do, you, how do you sing and pray and read like nothing ever happens? And it's just too much for some. So for some of you, if you're listening, if you're watching live right now, this passage is likely for you. This is even a sermon that you would want to email to your friends, not because I'm an assassin preacher and I'm going to lay it down real impressively today, and not because we're trying to recruit, but because there's a reason that people aren't here or in any church. Sure, they're sick a lot. Sure, they're working and they're busy a lot because that's what we say. That's what I used to say. But I think a lot of times there's just a thick layer of grime and it's just too difficult. There's a lot of people locked up even this morning in a cave of disappointment. So if shame has kept you at home and you are not here, this passage is definitely for you. You know, I think it'd probably just be helpful to jump in. A lot of passages in the Bible, especially in the book of John, have had to read the entire passage and kind of go for the, the guts of it, the main point. But when we did the book of Acts, which is the book that we did before this, I was able to walk through the passages, which I feel comfortable doing that most. So we actually get to do that with today's passage, which I'm excited. So if you have um, your Bible open, look at the 18th chapter of John, verse 1, and we're going to walk through this a little bit so you can gain context so that you can understand what's going on, and then we will go for the main point. Verse 1, as the Lord speaks to us, is when Jesus had spoken these words, which words? Basically the last four chapters, capped off with a beautiful prayer, the high priestly prayer, which we looked at the last two weeks. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Let's pause just for a second. It doesn't sound like it's a very notable set of facts right there, but it actually is. Okay, This is interesting because that brook Kidron was a lot like some of the brooks in the streams where I grew up in West Texas. It's, it's false advertising. It's not really holding any water. It's not really a brook, unless it rains. Now, if it rains, it's a raging torrent you don't want to be near. But typically, it's just kind of one of these deals to cross the brook. And that's what the brook Kidron was. It was actually on the eastern border of Jerusalem. And right on the other side, you could see the Garden of Gethsemane. It's right there, right on the eastern side. Okay. Now, John doesn't make any mention of the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is kind of famous. You'll see it in the other Gospels, but you won't see it in this. John is aiming for different facts, 
Right? He's looking to kind of give you a different perspective on what's going on. So what he spends time on is mentioning the arrest of Jesus there. That's what this becomes the setting for. Now, another interesting fact about this particular brook, which I'd love to preach on someday, be a fun sermon, I think, is that another time, almost 30 generations earlier, King David, who was rejected by the nation that he led, he was betrayed by someone who followed him closely, had to escape Jerusalem, and he left Jerusalem and crossed what? The Brook Kidron. Now, almost 30 generations later, we have a better David and King Jesus crossing the same brook who was denied and rejected by his own nation, and he too was betrayed by somebody close to him. You can go back to 2 Samuel, and you could read this small little narrative inside of King David's life without even knowing it. It's pointing all the way forward to this moment right here. Both of the betrayers were actually hung in those stories. It's interesting to just see how the Bible pushes and, and diverts our glance from something that seems like just an insignificant story to paint a much bigger picture of a bigger narrative. Anyway, that's a side point. Love to do that someday. I think it's pretty cool. Let's jump in at verse 2. Verse 2 says this. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Okay, the only thing I, we want to really make mention of there is there's a mixture of people, both Jews and Gentiles, that are there to arrest and eventually kill Jesus. You have what would, we would consider the Jewish police, right? Um, some officials that were religious officials of the time, and then you have some Roman soldiers. So you have a mixture of people all representing authority, and they're coming with weapons and torches, and those cable ties that you see on TV now, and pepper spray, and bulletproof vests. They're all geeked out about this. They're coming out. Some, some actual scholars say up to 200 people are coming to come and get him. So they mean business. That's what's going on. Verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Okay, interesting little thing. I mean, we could just visualize that, right? Whether it's 20 or 200. Him just speaking and them all just being leveled right there. Knocked on their butt, right? Now, some scholars will say this happened because of his boldness. He showed up and he was just super bold and they couldn't get over his boldness and they just fell over. Which seems a little goofy to me because he's been bold the whole time he's walked the planet. <laughs> we don't just see him leveling people everywhere he goes. That's not been happening. Other scholars say, no, 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 no. It wasn't because he was too bold. It's because he made his arrest so easy. He was so accessible and convenient to them that they were amazed about how easy it was, and they just fell over, which I think is even more goofy. I think, I think, I don't know, I think what's happening is we are seeing the power of God on earth leveling people and reminding us, you and me both, that no one arrests full God and full man and unless he says it's okay. Here they're coming in power. They're coming with all the implements of arrest, anything that would take you and me. They had sheer numbers, they had sheer tools, weapons, manpower. And God says, you can arrest me when I say it's okay. I think that's what's happening right here. I think it's for you and me to see. So verse seven, let's jump right in. So we ask them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Now this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. That was in the last chapter. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So this escalated fast. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Okay? Now, Peter was a little bit more fisherman than he was swordsman. Agreed? And this is a little bit more knife than it is sword. All right, so whenever you see sword in your Bible, think less samurai sword or Conan the Barbarian sword. Think more Bowie knife or K-bar or something that's longer than about nine inches up to maybe a foot long. That's what they carried. It was a very intimate weapon, right? And he's pretty sloppy with it because he just comes up with an ear out of that whole thing. So this is why everybody loves Peter and this is why everybody gets nervous around Peter all at the same time because he might do this. He's the guy that you would bring to a party but he would need like a chaperone and a, and a shadow the whole time or he'll end up on YouTube because he could be brilliant and brave and endearing he could also be misdirected and a bit dense. I think we all know what that feels like, right? To be all of those things. I think this passage or this little moment in this passage shows us that sometimes being zealous and courageous and brave is wasted unless we're on the same game plan as that God is on and sometimes it could actually get in the way. I could be like Peter sometimes, not because I'm awesome, but just because I'm not waiting on the Lord and things just escalate and I end up with a mess really fast, right? What's interesting is no one else is drawing their little knife sword. And no one's going berserk in this moment except for Peter. He ends up with a mess, blood splatter everywhere. I'm sure that wasn't pleasant. I'm, I always wonder what would have happened? What would have happened had Jesus not said, put away your knife sword? What would have happened had Jesus not said anything? Maybe he wasn't there. Maybe they kept him from saying something. Maybe he just, did, just didn't. I think he would have just kept stabbing and thrashing and cutting people. I think he would have just kept being a little bit nuts in this moment. Why? Because he still doesn't get it. He's super dense in this moment. I'm, I could be super dense. I totally resonate with him in this moment. Jesus tells him something repeatedly, and instead of trusting it, he goes nuts takes things into his own hands. Jesus has been telling them repeatedly, my hour is coming and I'm going to die. He tells us things repeatedly all the time and instead of trusting and leaning, we just kind of go nuts and make a mess and things escalate. You've got to see a little bit of this guy in yourself. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what your personality test came out and pegged you as. It doesn't matter what your gifting test says, what mom and dad always told you that you were like. It doesn't matter what group of friends you fit in or how different you are than the person next to us. Everybody's got a little bit of this DNA in them. Not trusting, acting, being nuts, ending up with a mess. So here's the passage that Jesus is basically allowing them to tie him up because he's about to be glorified on the cross. That's happening right now. Things are clicking. This is all happening on time. The Father is lifting him up, and in doing so, he will lift the Father up. 
And this is what we see in John 17, 1, which we looked at three weeks ago. Father, the hour has come, he says to his own father. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So Jesus' passionate work is for your soul, and it's about to be on display. We're about to see it happen. And once these ropes are on his wrists, once they tie him up, he will experience no more freedom on this earth until the Holy Spirit raises him from the dead. He's going to be in bondage and in captivity for the rest of our story, the rest of our Sunday mornings going through this. He's going to be led away like a lamb, and he's not going to put up a fight, not a word. And what's beautiful is the very fact that he offers himself up so conveniently and so easily, the very fact that he does this is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. 700 years before this happened, we see this in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed. He he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's because his fight was not against these men. His fight is against sin, and his fight is against death. Now those he's very vocal with. Those he's going to have something to do and say about, and we will see that in the coming passages. But let's go on to verse 13 and go a little further. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple, now who do you think that is, by the way? John. Yeah, he's referring to himself without saying me. Okay? Since that disciple was known to the high priest... He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Okay. I'll tell you what, let's just go a little bit further. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Okay, so we have some, we pause, we've got some new players introduced, right? You have Annas, you have Caiaphas, and some people get them confused, and I can understand their names we don't use today, and it can be confusing, right? Annas is the old high priest, the high priest was an interesting office because once you were given the title, you had it till you died. It's a lifetime role. But you weren't always the acting high priest. Annas was the old guard, the old acting high priest. Caiaphas is the new acting high priest. They lived in the same compound, but it shared a courtyard. That's where all the action's going down. Jesus' trial, the questioning back and forth, even Peter standing around the same fire pit with his enemies. That's all happening right there in the same little area, same courtyard, right? What's going on is Annas is trying to find enough cause to arrest Jesus and carry him off because he's not even been charged. They're looking to find enough evidence to charge him and kick him upstairs to the Sanhedrin court, right? That would be the next step. So he's questioning Jesus about his followers and his message. That's what it says here. He's trying to ascertain the momentum Jesus might have. Like, are we talking about like 15 guys or like 1,500, right? I mean, are are they kind of like a little sad that you're 
arrested or are they like picking up swords and super upset right now? And what is the message that you're teaching? Is it just, I wish things were better around here or is it revolt and I'm gonna take over? They're trying to ascertain the dangerousness of Jesus. And while all of that's happening, right across the same courtyard, you have got John speaking to the bouncer to let Peter in. That's happening. Peter comes in, and he's about to deny Jesus, but he's also about to stand with Jesus' enemies around the same fire pit, blending in as to look the same. Right? Consider, have you ever been in an aggressive place with aggressive factors in play and aggressive people around you with a lot on the line, because Peter has, he's doing it now. Let's look at verse 20, find out how he does with this. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I had to say to them. They, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Okay, this is police brutality. That's what we're seeing right here. This punch was illegal. It's the second or third law that they've broken so far, right? And it would be the first blow that he would take for us. Now is when it starts. Physically, being bound and being punched is where some of the passion of Jesus begins for you and for me, we're watching it play out. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Annas could not produce anything. He couldn't find any charges or produce anything that the Sanhedrin court could use at the time, so they're going to go ahead and kick him down the street and move him to Caiaphas, and maybe Caiaphas could. But notice he's still bound as a criminal. That's what John makes mention of here, another law broken. He's physically restrained as, a, as just a, a raw criminal, and he's not done anything to warrant a physical arrest. This is but one more of several moments where the Jews and the Romans will break their own laws to get and then kill Jesus. I've seen some scholars say there's about 12 laws, maybe around a dozen or so laws that were broken. I've seen some say all the way up to 30. <laughs> that would never happen today. That would never happen today. We do see laws broken when someone is arrested. We do see moments of police brutality, but we don't see 30 laws broken for someone that's totally and utterly innocent. What we're seeing here is unprecedented. It's unprecedented. Look at verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. So this is one of Malchus's relatives. You're pretty much done at that point. He said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Okay. You know, John left some of the guts out of this story. Not because he's trying to trick you and me. He's pointing out some different things. He's focusing on some different elements, right? Remember, the Gospels are written from four different positions, men, to four different primary audiences. So they're watching the same thing happen, the same story, but they're giving different details. 
there are details in this story that John left out. And if we looked at Matthew's account of this, we see Peter's cussing and flipping out and swearing and where he was going berserk and things were escalating with the sword, now he's doing it with his mouth to stay out of trouble. This is how it says in Matthew 26. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl, this is the second, this is not the same one at the door, another servant girl saw him. I love how it's a servant girl. He'll probably catch flack for this later on. It's not like a cage fighter was up in his face, you know, intimidating him or anything like that. These are little girls. These are servant girls. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. With an oath. This was back when oaths meant something. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them. For your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. He's dropping F-bombs. He's being out of control to underline his poor acting job. Can't even hide his own accent, but he is just anything he can to stay out of trouble in this moment. And I think as rough as that is, I think the roughest element of this whole story can be found in Luke's version, and that's where Jesus looks at him right after the rooster crows. And immediately, it says in Luke 22, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. (laughs) And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Okay. I think this scene shows us a couple things. I think it answers the question, first of all, of what kind of evil we're all capable of. This is a picture of the bottom of the barrel, what we can do, what we're really capable of doing. Beware of looking at a sad story in the Bible or the sad stories that you see on the news or you hear through the grapevine and think that can't happen to me because I'm not capable of that. This shows us exactly what we're capable of. And it's quite a bit. Peter spent years in the closest proximity that anyone had ever spent with Jesus. Think about it. For at least three years, no human on earth had access in close proximity to Jesus as much as Peter. He was one of the 12, which puts him in a small pool. But then he was also part of the three, Peter, James, and John. If you read the Gospels, you'll find that they're kind of brought into some areas that the other guys just aren't. And even among those three, you see Peter stand out the most intimate moments, the most endearing words. I mean, Peter had the time that you and I haven't had, face to face. And then he stands with Jesus' enemies and he denies him as emphatically as he possibly can. Can there be a more shameful moment in Peter's life than this? I mean, I think this is it. I mean, he's done a lot of stupid things. He still has blood splatter on him from an ear that happens just 400 meters away. It just happened, and I think this is worse. He's got to have a pit in his stomach unlike anything. He finds himself running away as fast as he can, as fast as he can see through the tears in his eyes, covered in the mistake from the last bad thing he did, probably looking for a place to ditch this nicely. He doesn't get in trouble for that either. If Peter had such a tight proximity to Jesus and he found shame so fast, I think if we were honest with ourselves in this passage, I think we could say we could get there even faster. I think I could get there even faster. Now, some of our trash 
we find an easier time moving through, don't we? Some of our sins, it's just easier to submit and hear, Lord, you know, I, know I, I threw a temper tantrum and, you know, I told a white lie. I ran that red light. I'm super sorry about that. I should have looked at that billboard, you know, but hey, your sin or your, your, your life covered my sins. Tomorrow's a new day. There's grace. Some, some sins are easier to move through, but some, they just hang, don't they? Don't they just stick? They just make it hard to get through the day. They, you can't even really see around them. Some are just different. I think it's likely that some of us carried that kind of thing in here with us. I think it's even likely that some of us wonder if it means that we are not saved anymore. Maybe we have gone too far, and maybe God won't go any further with us. You see, if this scene in the Gospel of John shows us anything, it shows us where bottom is. It shows us where bottom is. David was a king after God's own heart. I don't have the heart of David. I, I don't have the wisdom of Solomon. I don't have the face time that John had with Jesus. I don't have these things. And all those men found shame quickly. I'm capable of more. You know, I'm making a big deal about this because one of the operations of shame is to communicate to you that no one else is going through that and what you did no one else is capable of. It's to put you alone. One of the operations of shame is to put you away and to rob and strip you of all confidence before the Lord, to convince you that you're dirty when everyone else is clean. I think one of the best parts about this story is that it brings me hope. It leads me forward. You know, Paul says in Romans that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Man will do his worst, but God will actually respond with his very best. We'll do our worst, but God will respond with his best. So when it says grace abounds all the more, can I just, just for a second, if you were to rank your sins on a scale of zero to 100, just for, for an explanation, if you were to do a three, not a big deal, maybe like a white lie, but in our minds we're doing it for their good, right? Yes, you look great in that, right? Three, that's a three. We think that grace comes up to a three, and erases that sin. That's how good God is. What if it was a 28? That's a little bit of more of a hardcore sin, whatever it is. We think that grace rises to a 28 to meet the occasion. It's a 99. Grace comes up to a 99. I want you to consider that whatever it is between zero to 100, grace is infinity. It goes forever. It's abounding. It's abounding. It's not just good enough. It's abounding. So where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And what I'd like to do is just take three props out of this story and explain how they show us that very thing, that grace abounds, right? Uh, right behind me, behind these curtains, tons of props. Floor to ceiling, all, just props from what the theater does up here. You can't go back and look. You're not allowed up here. I'm sorry. Just take my word for it. Lots of props, painted, fake, all kinds of stuff. Props are meant to help with the storyline this is a storyline that is not just Peter's, but I find myself in the same storyline. And the three props that jump out are the fire pit, the rooster, and the cup. Those are the big three. I just want to look at them just for a moment. I think that charcoal pit, that's a place of testing. It's a complicated place, though, isn't it? It's a complicated place. I mean, Peter was protecting himself from harm. And you could tell he was a little bit on his heels in this. Because he just doesn't sound like himself. Right? 
He's trying to stay in good favor. He doesn't start off cussing. He just gets there. But you could tell he's just not comfortable. And because of that, things are escalating. And I recognize this place. This is the way places of testing can feel like. It always makes me feel like I'm on my heels. Always makes me feel like the odds are stacked against me. And if the odds were a little bit more in my favor, I wouldn't be failing right here. But I'm failing. I feel like one arm is tied behind my back. I mean, can't you just hear that in, in Peter's heart? I wouldn't have denied Jesus if there weren't so many people around me that were aggressive and were on my case. I wouldn't have denied Jesus then. I, I wouldn't be getting drunk every night if my job didn't stink and my boss wasn't such a troll, right? I wouldn't be lost in an ocean of lust if my, my spouse was just better or if I had a spouse. I wouldn't be so angry all the time if things just worked out my way. I wouldn't be so anxious all the time if things just worked out my way. I wouldn't be so sad, so depressed if things just worked out my way. I would be on God's mission if I just had more time. I would be generous with my time and talent and treasure if, if I just had any to give. We always feel like one arm is tied behind our back, and this is why testing is testing. You will always feel on your heels. This is the way it is. If you keep failing at whatever various fire pits you have right now, one thing you've got to quit doing is quit acting like the odds are against you. You just got to stop that. You have everything you need. I have everything I need. That's what the Bible tells me. Paul tells me in 1 Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, which means there's no fire pit that requires that I act shamefully. Paul says, but with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I think when we're at our fire pits, our hope is that once we act shamefully, we will get what we really need. It will help us. We feel like God is holding us back, and by doing something that we want to do that may or may not be shameful, then we get that thing that we want. And we wouldn't have to do it if he just didn't make it so hard, if he didn't restrict us. God, I don't want to do this, but you're making me do it because you're not providing for me in all these other areas. So I will do better on my own. You're holding me back. And here's the horrible sinking drain of the whole thing. When we do do something monstrous or horrible or shameful, then we feel like we can't be close to God anymore. That's how one begets the other. And certainly, our sin, it should evoke a sense of sadness in us. Peter, we see him weeping bitterly. There, there should be a sorrow attached to how we grieve the Lord and how we move against him. There should be. But I find there's sometimes an aftertaste, like a shame aftertaste that follows, and it creates this gap between us and God relationally that God doesn't intend to be there. Once that cross was bloodied, that gap was closed. There is no gap. There's no longer a gap. No longer any reason to rush off to a cave and be alone and not pick up the phone and not pray and not read until you could behave well for a couple weeks so you could feel better about doing those things. All that's an unnecessary exercise. Not only is this fire pit very complicated, it's very scary because it feels like possibly I've lost my salvation, right? If I could just say this out front, because it might be the most important thing and maybe some of you could hear today. It may be the thing you need to take out of here of all the things. There really is no fire pit that you could hit enough foul balls in. There's not a level of sin 
in your time of testing that can outrun the blood of Jesus. There's nothing that you can do that can look at what Jesus did and say, insufficient. You'd have to have done more to cover what I just did. Certainly, you won't handle me the same way anymore, Lord. You see, we just cannot lose what we did not earn. And I know that's a common statement, but I just want you to think about that. That's what grace, grace is defined by such. Grace says that you've been given a very beautiful gift and a very beautiful favor totally despite you. Despite your ability to be awesome and earn it, despite your ability to maintain it, despite your ability to throw it down and run away from it, despite you, God has been very sweet and kind to you. That's what grace is. That's what grace is. I mean, if bad deeds could lose our salvation, then it must have been good deeds that secured it. We know that the Bible says opposite of that. I feel like understanding salvation to be something that could be lost is tantamount to saying that God gives us a very beautiful gift, but it just can't hold up to the wear and tear we put it through. So it's really not that great of a gift when you think about it. And some of you in here, you go back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth, wondering whether or not you were saved. You're kind of sure, but you're not 100% sure. You're like 92% sure, right? Because of that nagging hesitation for that thing you did. Or maybe you're 68% sure or 40% sure. And you know what decides what number it is for you? Your performance, your behavior. Consider Peter. Consider Peter at that moment, running, trying to make his way out of that courtyard, running right by that same little girl bouncer that kept him from getting in. He's crying. He's got a, a knife he's got to do something with, seriously. He's going to get busted for that, right? He's got blood all over him. He's got that nagging pit in his stomach. He had to have been thinking, certainly I'm going to hell now, man. I mean, I denied him. I dropped F-bombs. He looked right at me. I'm going to hell. But a four-minute walk away, just before this happened, he's the only one that pulls his sword. You know Peter. I mean, you know him enough to, to know what he was thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got in trouble a little bit. Maybe I shouldn't have done that thing. I get it. But no one else did it. So, hey, when it comes to bravery, I'm number one. I just want everyone to know that. I'm his favorite. Back and forth, back and forth. Back and forth living is legalistic. It's not empowering, it's not joyful, and it's definitely not a lifestyle that you will have much confidence in. Not confidence before the Lord. Because you can't live a joyful, confident life if you think the king doesn't want you in his kingdom. Can't happen. And this is why some of you seem to not be able to enjoy Jesus. You think he doesn't enjoy you. You can't celebrate the gospel because you don't really understand how good it is yet. It's still a little bit lost. You might still think that the gospel is, yes, a free gift, and yes, it's given to you, but it has maintenance fees. It has maintenance fees. It's got upkeep. And if you don't maintain the upkeep, it'll be taken away from you, or you'll lose it, right? Listen, there are churches that teach this, and they're dead wrong. Dead wrong. Some of you grew up under this teaching. I grew up under this teaching. It's dead wrong. It has made the altar call famous, especially in this region, it's pandemic. The altar call of you can not only get saved upon a song and upon a sinner's prayer, which is a totally different sermon, but we can create a moment where salvation can find you and we can create a moment for you to get re-saved, especially if you had a crappy weekend. You can rededicate and get re-saved. And we will pray the same words over and over and over again until it sticks, until you get it. 
until you're really saved. I've had friends that have said, will you pray for me to be a Christian? Well, you're already a Christian. I know, but listen, I've done some things. I just, I don't think it's stuck, or maybe we said it wrong, or maybe, maybe I didn't mean it enough, but I mean it now. Can we pray now? Can we pray now? Can we try it again? Back and forth, back and forth. That's not a different kind of Christianity, by the way. That's not Christianity at all. It's a heretical religion. It's a heretical religion. I know that sounds harsh, but that's because the gospel really is the fact that you were handpicked before the stars were thrown into the sky, before anything started, God already knew your filthy thoughts. He already knew your fire pit moments. He already saw them. He knew about your addictions, your heavy issues, even before you drew your first breath, even before Adam drew his first breath. He knew these things. You see, this is a scene of scary mess, but it's a scene of grace if you don't miss it, because it reminds us of God's sovereign understanding of our weaknesses, your weaknesses, he understands. He's a better high priest. That's why he's such a good one. There's sympathy for your weaknesses. And not only just the weaknesses you have, but the grief and the shame that come afterward, like a storm. He understands it all. This is what the author of Hebrews means in his fourth chapter when he says, since then we have a great high priest who is the last high priest in Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with what? Confidence. Confidence. Hear it. With confidence, we draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confidence is how you approach the Lord, or the gospel is not the gospel. Okay? Confidence is how we hold ourselves before our king, or the gospel is not good news anymore. If you have to grovel and skulk and, and drag your feet like a beaten dog because you have not performed well, then the gospel's not the gospel anymore. You see, we handle our high priest a little odd because we either push away or we only draw close when we feel like we've got good performance behind us and we're entitled to have that place. But confidence cannot come from our work. It has to come from Jesus' work. That's what makes the gospel the gospel. The next two props I don't spend near as much time on, but I think they're important. One is the rooster, which is more than just a declaration of failure. That's how we read it, right? A declaration of failure. You have failed. You were condemned. You know that's how Peter heard it, you know. He probably never heard a rooster crow the same way ever again. I bet every time he heard a stupid rooster, he just kind of, ugh, because it would just be a reminder of how he failed. But it's also a sign of grace. Now, this might require you to Follow me a little bit more, right? But just ask the question for a moment. Why doesn't Jesus, why doesn't Jesus just tell Peter before they go, Peter, listen, I know it's gonna happen because I just predicted it. You're gonna keep denying me, then the rooster's gonna crow. Listen, <laughs> one, a dude to another dude, you should hang back for this one. You should guard base. That's what happens in other movies where there's always a guy that's kind of holding everyone back. They get to, they get to guard base, right? You should stay back and watch over the place and the donkeys and the stuff over there because things just aren't going to look good for you. Why didn't Jesus just say that? He knew what was going to happen. Why? 
We're gonna find out in the last chapter, when we hit this last passage, we're gonna see Jesus minister to Peter. Yes, Peter really messes up. Lots of shame, but he gets to experience a grace that is so utterly incredible that I don't know that he really was able to even know Jesus until that moment. Jesus wanted that level of relationship with him. And I think it's also so that you and I could grow and watch Peter mess up and then see the hope that comes in this and and so that we'd see that God would be glorified in all of this. Paul says in Romans, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for the Peters at the fire pits. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what Paul says. So when roosters are blaring in our life, it feels like every day, doesn't it? When roosters are going off, reminding you that you just screwed up again. It shouldn't lead you to run away and retreat away from the Lord. It should lead you to celebrate confidently that Jesus is my hero and he has worked hard right now. He's worked hard so I don't have to work at all right now. I can celebrate God. I can draw near in confidence because that's what the gospel has given me. Did you know that even at that very moment where you have seen that you have done something wrong, even that is a gift of God. Even that moment where the rooster is blaring, even that is a gift of God for you. That God would even show you what the Puritans would call sight of sin. That you would even be able to recognize that what you did grieved the very heart of God. That what you did was paid for. Even that, even that is a gift from our kind God. And it was meant to draw us to repentance. It's a kindness. That's what Paul says. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So whenever you sit, you hear a sermon, you read a book, you pray, and you feel that conviction that comes, that, oh, Jesus is looking at you across from the courtyard. You've really bungled it up, right? When you've had that moment and that rooster crows, that is God making straight the way between you and him, empowering you by the Holy Spirit to come with confidence and celebrate what he has done over you as you change and as you turn. See, that shows you that you are saved, doesn't it? I'm not saying everyone in this room is saved. I don't think everyone is. I mean, it's unlikely with these numbers. But if you're at a place, if you're at a place where you're like, oh gosh, I feel horrible for what I've done and it's got me all in knots and I just feel like I've really grieved Jesus and I feel like things gotta change and I just need Jesus to help me. I need the Holy Spirit. Listen, lost people don't do that. Newsflash. Maybe you remember, I didn't do that. I was like, what, is that a sin? Oh, doesn't seem to be hurting anybody. I kind of like it. Why is that a sin? Maybe it's just a sin for you. Consider that even in your conviction is the rooster crows. Consider even then that God is loving you kindly through his spirit. So what this means is, what I see is, I am powerless to not deny God unless the Holy Spirit is working in me. You see, right after this, Peter is preaching in front of a whole city, right? The very first part of Acts. And he's preaching crazy strong and bold with heavy conviction. It was a couple servant girls that had this guy in knots chapter before that. Now he doesn't care who hears him. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Every day you've got to beg the Holy Spirit Beg God to give you the spirit to enjoy Jesus and to be confident before God. 
You have to beg the Holy Spirit to lead you through those tempting trials, right around those fire pits, not so that you never have a temptation again, but so that when you do have temptations and when you do have trials, you can see that God has given you a way of escape. You can apply the gospel to your life, and you can grow. You've got to ask the Holy Spirit for that. Or friend, listen, it's not going to happen for you. This is why. Because you're trying to defeat the flesh, and you're trying to defeat the enemy of your soul. And if you try to do that on your own strength and willpower and brilliance, it's not going to happen. How do you defeat those things without the Holy Spirit? You've got to have the Holy Spirit. I'm going to finish with this prop. You will find Jesus holding something in this passage, metaphorically, of course, but while Peter is holding a sword, Jesus is holding a cup. It's a cup given to him by his father. Now, this language, it starts to lose translation going from back then to here, admittedly. We don't talk about handing each other a cup unless it's got like sweet tea in it or, hey, hand me that cup. We just mean, give me the cup. But back then, the cup being poured out, particularly if it was wine, it denoted wrath being poured out particularly the wrath of God. That's what Jesus is speaking of in this passage. He's saying it's necessary that I take this cup. He's speaking of God's wrath. I think we get this from Psalm 75 the most clearly. It's all throughout the Old Testament, but I like this one the best. It says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs, down to the last drop, right? Now, here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus drank this for you and me all the way down to the last drop. Jesus took this wrath so that you would not. Jesus took this wrath so that you would get to drink from a different cup at a different banqueting table in a very different time in a different place with no sin in a kingdom that we are not disinvited from, but a kingdom where we have a place reserved for us. He took this cup. So is God mad at my, my sin and my shameful deeds? Yes, he is. You are right in saying that. He is very furious at that. But does he pour it out on you, his son or his daughter in the Lord? No, that's where you would be wrong. He does not do that because he's already emptied the cup. The cup has been emptied on Jesus. That means there's no wrath for you. There might be discipline for you, but that's not the same thing as wrath and punishment. Not the same thing. Jesus' blood it will cleanse everything, even the most shameful things. And this is what we celebrate in communion, by the way. It's a symbol of some very multi-layered, multifaceted beauty in the gospel. But one thing is, is that he experienced the fullness of God's wrath for us, and so it took the breaking of his body and it took the bleeding out of his body. And we get to symbolically take a part of that as a community of believers. And it also forecasts, as I said, a different party where we all jam down again around a bigger table where we all see each other and we know Jesus and we can see Jesus and we can celebrate in a place where there's no sin and no tears and no pain. That's what that is. So what do we do when we've acted shamefully? in our time of testing and the rooster's crowing in our ears. First thing we do is we repent. And a lot of times there will be some bitter tears. Bitter tears. Some brokenness over what we have done to our king. But then you know the very next thing? We celebrate. 
Does that sound misplaced? You see, what we want to do is say, well, we have, to, we have to feel sorry for a little bit longer. I mean, you repent, but I mean, Luke, you can't just go right into celebration. There's got to be like a time where you feel real rotten inside, right? I mean, there's got to be a time where you, you kind of have to skulk a little bit. You celebrate. You celebrate because the gospel is that good. And the confidence that you carry to the throne room of God is not based on how long you skulk, but it's based on the work of Jesus, which makes your works null and void. We celebrate, and then we return. We clock back in, but we clock back in with full confidence because our privileges haven't changed and our citizenship hasn't changed. We have a mission we're invited to. We've got a lot of work to do. We have community to build and nurture. We've got a lot of work to do. You can't do that without the confidence that you have before the king. Not do it well. That's a different sermon. That's a different sermon. I just want to speak to some of you real quickly. In fact, go ahead and stand up because we're finished. I think some of you have no confidence in you because you feel like you don't deserve to have confidence before the Lord. You're right. You don't. Nothing you have done and nothing you will ever do will gain you the right or the entitlement to stand before the Lord. What Jesus has done has given you that entitlement. Your confidence has to rest somewhere else. Today you have an opportunity to worship and celebrate God for what he's done for you. The gospel really is good, isn't it? I think some of you in here, you have no confidence and you are at a fire pit. You have roosters going off everywhere and you know I am not a Christian. I'm very far from God. It's not like I ever had him. I've never been sure at all. I've never, I've never even heard the gospel before. I've never had anything declared to me that made me feel like I was close to God or anything. Maybe you've grown up religious, and maybe you've just looked from the outside looking in. And you can feel your heart pounding, and you're wondering what this means for you. I will say this, and it's not a scare tactic. It's really not. But that cup of wrath... That cup of wrath that Jesus absorbs, he absorbs it for those who are close and drawn near to him. That wrath will spill over to those who have no part with God. But he is drawing people. He is avidly, quickly, rapidly drawing people to himself. Man, you might need somebody to talk to. That might be you. You're trying to make sense of all of this. Am I saved? Am I not saved? I'm not quite sure. Maybe somebody could help me. We can help you. We'd love to help you. So if that's you, whenever we pray and whenever we sing, the lights will be off. There'll be plenty of time for you to go back and talk to one of us. I'll be back in that corner over there, right? We'll have, Chris will be right there in that exit. You could talk to one of us. We'd love to help you through this, okay? But I just feel like it's a heavy enough moment where I don't want to just walk out as if everybody in here belongs and loves and super excited about Jesus. I just don't think that's the case, okay? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being so good to us. I thank you for the fact that when that rooster is crowed, it reminds me, it reminds me in my life that there is grace to be found in you. And that I don't have to skulk around. I could go from one minute to the other. I could go right from being broken and being tearful and being sad for what I've done and the mess that I've created, and I can march right into your throne room and celebrate you because you don't see me any differently. My privileges haven't changed. I wasn't demoted. Lord, we love you so much, and when we look at your work, the passion that is beginning even in this page, 
Even in this story, you're being punched, you're being bound, you're being ridiculed. Already we see it. People are leaving, people are denying you. All of that was done for us and to glorify your Father. You are being glorified, you are glorifying your Father, and you are drawing us very close to you. Father, I know that there are people in here right now that they go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and the only thing that gives them confidence, and just even a shred, a thread of confidence, is good performance. And when they perform well, it seems like their prayers are clicking and they have no problem being around other people, but man, when they misperform, it's a very different experience. Father, that you would show them that that is not the gospel. In fact, that's not even Christianity. That's something entirely different. That's a bondage to, to the law and works. But God, we could have something very, very different. Lord, that you would nurture our hearts and show us where we've gone astray, where we've said that you are not enough, so we have to perform. Where we've said that your blood doesn't really cleanse and you really didn't take the wrath, so we have to act, we have to do. And Lord, how we've retreated from community, we've retreated from worship, we've retreated from anything that reminds us of you because we feel like we just don't have a right to be around. Lord, that we would see that your work for us has created that right, that family identity that we have. And Lord, that you would be rescuing hearts in this house and in other houses in the city right now, that in Knoxville, people would be radically being born again, radically being born again, because they see themselves at a fire pit as an enemy of God, not as a disciple, but they see themselves as one of the accusers. And they realize very quickly, I am not God. And there is a very good God, and he loves me. And he's gone to great lengths, taken a great deficit for me to benefit. Lord, that your beauty would be shown and clear before all eyes hearing your gospel this morning. Lord, that you would be rescuing and retrieving and seeking and saving even today. You are so good. You are so gentle with us. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.